other side of midnight presents what you're about to hear is not a news broadcast perhaps you can help solve a mystery this is the Murano mystery this is This is the great Glenn Miller, one of his many classic songs. And whether you've got a gal in Kalamazoo or not, whether you have boarded the Chattanooga Choo Choo or not, you know the music of Glenn Miller. You've heard it a couple hundred times. And I'll tell you, the mark of an important artist is that his music lives on, or her music lives on after they're gone. To think that we're still listening to these great Glenn Miller songs 80 years later is just extraordinary. In just four years, Glenn Miller scored 16 number one records and 69 top ten hits. Do you know of any other artist that can say that? That's more than Elvis Presley. More than the Beatles did in their career. And uh, by all accounts, Glenn Miller seems like a pretty special human being. However, he was gone at the age of 40. He did all this before he was even 40 years old. What happened to him? Well, his disappearance has been the source of a lot of different theories over the years. And it's been wondered about. Almost since it happened, back in 1944. A gentleman who has studied this backwards and forwards, and uh, in fact written a book on this, is Dennis Sprague. He's an author, a historian, and a broadcaster. Uh, His books include Glenn Miller, Declassified. Dennis, thanks for getting up early with us. You're welcome. It's good to be with you. And I'm glad that Glenn Miller is back on 770. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Me too. Now, um, for people that um, may not be familiar with uh, Glenn Miller and his music, his life, who was Glenn Miller? How significant was his career as a musician? Well, you have to put him in perspective of his times. He was a band leader. When he was active, the big bands were the top entertainment draw in the United States. The singers really took precedence during and after World War II. But before the war, the bands were really the top draw. And so he competed with people like Tommy Dorsey, Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, and alike. And uh, he was really a sideman working for other people in the 1930s. Started his own band in 1937. He struggled, but by 1939... At places like the Glen Allen Casino in New Rochelle, the Meadowbrook in Cedar Grove, New Jersey, and at the Cafe Rouge of the soon-to-be-demolished Hotel Pennsylvania, he became America's number one band. As you pointed out, he sold all those records on RCA, and he had his own radio program, network radio program on CBS. The uh, remotes were on, of course, NBC's Red and Blue Network. Blue became ABC, hence 770. Mm-hmm. He was on he was on your air a lot. <laughs> so, but he, he hit it big in 1939 and never looked back. And uh, yeah, by 1942, he was the top dog. He was America's number one band, most popular musician. 
And all of that fame and fortune mattered not to him because America had entered World War II. He felt a great responsibility to particularly the young people that had bought his records. He wanted to do more than just uh, hang out and make money. You know, he said, I don't want to do this whole thing on remote control. There's something I owe back to my country and I want to participate. So he enlisted in the Army. They assigned him to the Army Air Forces. And I, I always tell people this. The Army Air Forces were pretty savvy as far as public relations mm-hmm. and uh, that kind of stuff. General Hap Arnold. And they, they put Miller into a slot as kind of their spokesperson. And and, he, and, I mean, that is pretty impressive. Uh, one of the biggest stars in the world selling all these records, doing all these things on radio right. and in recorded sound. And he chose voluntarily to join the military. That's right. He tossed it. Now, he wasn't the only one that did that. Sure. But he was perhaps one of the most prominent people to do it. And, uh, you know, yeah, he, he walked away. Now, you have to remember on the other side of that. Because of the war, the bands were decimated by the draft. There was rationing so they couldn't travel as much as they could. And there was a recording strike. A fellow named James Caesar Petrillo, the head of the American Federation of Musicians, struck the recording companies. So he couldn't make records starting in August 1st of 42. So for a lot of reasons, he thought, you know what, I can pick this all up after the war. So. Hmm. Well, and I guess, you know, the the conventional wisdom was that he would have been able to. Now, what is what is he disappeared in 1944? What was the official story at the time of his disappearance, December 15th, 1944? Basically, that he had boarded an airplane on December 15th in the afternoon to fly from England to France. He was flying ahead of his band, the Army Air Forces Orchestra, which they called the American Band of the AEF, was in London uh, making broadcasts over the BBC and the American Forces Network and the Allied Expeditionary Forces Network. And Shafe, Supreme Headquarters, run by General Eisenhower, decided that they thought the band should move from London to Paris, which had been liberated and, you know, the band had been appearing in person for air bases, Air Force personnel, but Army personnel on leave, ground forces, had not seen it. So they thought, you know, we want to get the band closer. And so Miller went on ahead of the band to make arrangements. Um, he boarded this airplane. It just vanished. It, it took off in the afternoon. There are reasons why it vanished and uh, all of that. But a week after his disappearance, they announced on Christmas Eve that he was missing. Mm. Nobody else seen just him. He and the pilot and the and a colonel who's, who uh, he had hitched a ride with, actually. And there were just three of them. And they were never seen. They just vanished. They, they were never seen again. At 40 years old. Now, uh, you've researched this thoroughly uh, for your book, Glenn Miller Declassified, and people can get that on your website at Dennis M. Sprague with two G's dot com. That's Dennis M. Sprague dot com. What is your theory? And by the way, this book, as I understand it, was done with the approval of the Miller estate. What's your theory about what happened with Glenn Miller's disappearance? Well, it's actually pretty straightforward. One of two things happened to the airplane. And there's a reason why it became a big mystery, by the way. Uh, One of two things happened, and the Air Force knew this in January of 1945. 
It was an unauthorized flight. Therefore, it wasn't tracked by the air traffic control system. So nobody knew he was aloft. Why was was it unauthorized? Uh, The colonel who Glenn hitched a ride with ordered his pilot on ahead, even though instrument flight clearance had been denied because of the weather. Got it. Simple. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And so the airplane was a C-64 Norseman. The plane was built by Nordine Aircraft in Montreal. It was a Canadian bush plane, basically, that the 8th Air Force and 9th Air Force used as as cargo and people haulers. Uh, They did fly back and forth across the channel um, safely at 5,000 feet. But on this day, since the pilot went ahead without instrument clearance over the cloud cover, which was 10-10 cloud cover, they flew under the clouds, and they were low. It was icing conditions. It was you know, December in England, it was, you know, 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, one of two things happened. He iced up and went in, or he became disoriented. Remember JFK Jr.? Sure. Off of Nantucket. I yeah. mean, uh, Marcus Vineyard, I'm sorry. And think JFK Jr. getting disoriented. So one of two things, either the mechanical failure, which would be the icing, but that means the pilot put the plane in a position to fail. And or he just flew it into the water, literally just flew, became disoriented and flew it in the water. Wow. Uh, now, one theory that gained a lot of traction that you explored thoroughly in your book had to do with uh, a former Royal Air Force navigator by the name of Fred Shaw. And as the story goes, for people that are unfamiliar with it, in 1956, after seeing the movie biography, The Glenn Miller Story, Uh, which I thought was actually a pretty good movie. Uh, Fred Shaw recalled watching a Norseman crash into the channel after being hit either by a bomb or knocked over by a nearby explosive blast as a fleet of Royal Air Force Lancasters, of which he was part, released their bombs into the English Channel. Now, he then looked at his notes and found that this happened the same day that Glenn Miller disappeared. Now, you looked into this Fred Shaw claim. What was your analysis? I gave him an exit ramp. <laughs> I'm, I'm being facetious, but the the exit ramp was that he may have seen something, but it wasn't Miller's plane. Uh, he probably didn't see anything because if you know anything about a Lancaster or where the navigator sat, there was no way he could see below the airplane and see an, an interse- intercepting aircraft 5,000 feet below him. But anyway, to make a long story short, the Lancasters were on a mission to Germany that day, a radar bombing mission. They had to return because their fighter escort hadn't been able to rendezvous with them. They were over the channel. They did jettison bombs. In other words, they had to let the bombs go before they came back and landed at their bases for safety reasons and wait. And uh, at about quarter after one that afternoon, they jettisoned the bombs. Um, They happened to miss the jettison area, and they were over an air transport route where Miller's plane would have been coming and did apparently around a quarter of three, three o'clock. But they were about 90 minutes ahead of him. And at the time, in the American and British records, and even in the Stars and Stripes, I'm looking at the February 4th Stars and Stripes, you wouldn't believe this, they hit uh, a ferry flight of other planes that were flying across ahead of Miller's plane. And so it was a case of mistaken identity. It wasn't Miller's plane. It was somebody else. They did miss. They didn't knock anything out of the sky, but they they scared the living daylights out of some people below Mm. them that were coming across. Because, you know, they're below the clouds, and all of a sudden these bombs start coming through the clouds at them. 
And they're like, what's this? And so, and they complained at the time, and it was well known that it had happened, but it was not Miller's plane. So something did happen, but it didn't involve Miller. Interesting. Now, there were all sorts of other uh, unsubstantiated theories about Glenn Miller's death. One was that he was assassinated after President Eisen, after Dwight Eisenhower, uh, before he was president, sent him on a secret mission to negotiate a peace deal with the Nazis. One was a theory that he died of a heart attack in a brothel after arriving in Paris. Uh, one was right. a theory that his aircraft was hit by bombs being jettisoned by Allied bombers returning from an aborted mission to Germany. Uh, did you look into some of these other alternative theories beyond the Fred Shaw theory? Oh sure, all the crackpot stuff. Sure, well, the, the, you have to do that. You have to eliminate all the all the variables and all the rumors. And by the way, a lot of that stuff came up the week he disappeared or the week after he disappeared, because like then, like today, we had a press corps, mm-hmm. and they don't always. I'm just opinion here. You know, the press corps doesn't always get their facts straight. Yeah, I've noticed. Uh, and rumor rumor can crop into their thinking. And so they're sitting around with not much to do. They knew Glenn Miller was gone, so they started yakking amongst themselves. And they thought, well, maybe the Germans captured him, maybe this, maybe that. And so all this stuff cropped up. But here's the funny thing about this. The day after the Allies announced that Miller was missing, German radio, Herr Dr. Goebbels, you know, the Nazis, announced that Miller died in a brothel in Paris. Ah, so I see. So that Paris that began as a, a Nazi rumor. Fake news. <laughs> fake news. Interesting. Even then, fake news. No, no, no. They, and they were adept at this. They they were they were up to mischief, and they and they said, "Oh no!" He, and they they were just poking skunk. You know, that's what they were doing. But anyway, the brothel thing is nutty because that means he he got over to Paris, and and they lied that he actually arrived. Okay, if that were true. Where was Colonel Bazell and the pilot, flight officer Morgan? Right. They vanished too. So th- you can throw that one out the window. Plus, I had access to Miller's V disc mail r- letters, you know, the little microfilm letters between he and his wife back and forth. He wrote home every day. So I, I and his wife, of course, li- of course, at the time lived in Tenafly, New Jersey. Um, so I, I know that that wasn't true. And anybody that knew anything about Miller knew that that wasn't in his 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 style. Um, he he was. But the, the other thing about the the secret mission and all of that with Eisenhower, um, Miller was a very high profile celebrity. There was no way he could do a clandestine mm-hmm. mission because he he was too visible. Plus, he didn't know the German language at all. He did a broadcast. He did propaganda broadcasts from London um, in the in in what they called phonetic German, where he faked it. You know, he was reading the script, and uh, he sounds – anybody that speaks German knows that he doesn't know it because he sounds terrible speaking in the German language. So now that, that – you know, he was a very popular band leader, but it wasn't as though he um, he had the power to cause the Nazis sure. to quit the war. Makes sense. Plus, by the way, by the way, one thing I would mention, this flight – look at the date. It's December 15th of 44. The next morning – the Germans launched what we now know as the Battle of the Bulge, the offensive in the Ardennes. So within 24 hours of this plane going missing, and nobody knew it was missing because they, they, they weren't tracking it. Um, and that was the other thing. It took them three days to figure out that Miller was gone so that they, they lost him. Um, the Battle of the Bulge started. So Allied attention was not on a major who played a trombone. It was on stopping the Germans. Right, so, sure. 
you know, that that kind of distracted him in terms of what was going on. But the biggest thing was that he was not authorized to be on this plane. He was supposed to take official transport. And his direct report who ordered him across ahead of the band was a gentleman by the name of Lieutenant Colonel David Niven. That name may sound familiar to some of your well, listeners. Well, we remember the actor, David and, Niven, certainly. And Niven, and Niven had no idea that Miller had hitched a ride with Bazell. Otherwise, he would have said, no, you take the, the official transport and don't hitch a ride with somebody in this small plane. We want you coming across in one of the big transport planes that normally fly the route. And they were grounded. And that's what Miller was, you know, that's why Miller was uh, not known. So 72 hours passed. And in those weather conditions, they had 20 minutes in the water if they ditched. And and it looks as though they, they didn't. Now, the reason for the mysteries is real simple. The military investigated the crash. But in World War II, as you might know, a lot of planes went missing, thousands. And they weren't in the habit of sending letters to families, or telegrams to families saying, your son messed up and messed his right, navigation sure, of course. up and got lost over the water or flew into the side of the mountain or the Germans shot him out of the sky and we don't have anything because the plane blew up, that kind of stuff. So they sealed it. They did an investigation, a very thorough investigation. They sealed it in January 20th of 1945 and it got put away. And what they basically did was three senior officers in the 8th Air Force lost their jobs as the plane should not have been allowed to fly that day, bottom line. Now, since then, has there been any effort to continue the investigation, any effort to maybe find the plane? I imagine it's pretty difficult to find the uh, the remains of the people on board, but is well, it possible to find the plane at all? It depends on what you mean. It depends on what you mean by find and what, what you might find. If it was a violent accident, that, that is the plane hit the water at full speed, um, it, it shattered into pieces, and so you're looking for debris. I see. And after, and after 80 years in degradation under the water in the channel, um, you've got an engine block which will still be there. It's metal. The big right engine will be there. But much of the plane was made out of sick of spruce wood, and it had a steel frame, so all the wood should have, would have been rotted out by now. But you'd have maybe the frame of the plane and the debris. Uh, we kind of think we know where it is. If he followed, the, if the pilot was on course, we have a direct line of where he could be. There was no debris found on either side of the channel on the French or German, or French, excuse me, or English side. So somewhere in the middle is is this debris it's shallow water um robert ballard wouldn't have a problem finding it in terms of depth it's not like going after the bismarck or the titanic it's 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 out there but the problem is is that you've got shipping lanes going back and forth mm. so uh, uh, uh anybody trying to find it is going to get run over by a tanker or a freighter if they get out there so you have to you know be careful but you you could find it but there's but do you, I, I i asked this question um and and I found out the answer. There's thousands and thousands of pieces of debris littering that channel. I mean, just just World War II alone, all the planes and in the North Sea, all these unexploded bombs that are down there. It's unbelievable. So um, yeah, you you could you could if with patience, time, money, you could eventually find it. Some people have claimed they'd found it off the French coast in the 1970s, but nothing materialized from that. Then again, in the 80s and 90s, there were claims made they'd found the plane, but nobody ever mounted a serious expedition. But yes, it could, in theory, be found. 
Now, um, so you have no suspicion at all that there was foul play involved? No, oh no, it was it was it was it was it, it was human error and mechanical failure. You know, airplane accidents are just that way, and it's it's a whole bunch of events coming together at once. Miller should never put himself on that plane to begin with, mm-hmm. but then again, the pilot shouldn't have flown it. And the colonel who ordered the pilot ahead and was trying to impress Glenn by giving him a ride ought to have thought twice about it. But, you know, I look at it this way. The Air Force questioned the state of mind of all three individuals uh, in their report, which we now have. But I'm thinking they didn't look at it that way. They didn't think they were going to commit suicide by going across the water on a bad day. They they were in a rush to get where they were going, and they thought everything was going to be fine. So, what what sparked your interest in Glenn Miller? Oh boy, I've I've had an interest in him my whole life. Um, my parents were both in the entertainment industry. Um, my uh, father was a distant relation of Miller, and uh, well, I you know I was always interested in the music and the era, and then I got into the professional world and uh, became acquainted with uh, not only. Uh, my my predecessor and mentor at the University of Colorado, who ran the Glenn Miller archives, um, but uh, Glenn Miller's son, Steve, and Steve said, you know, I want to put the rest, all the rumors and all the stuff I've had to deal with my whole life. Imagine being this guy's kid. Sure. And and having to live your whole life with all the stories and all the rumors and all the scurrilous stuff, you know, it was like, okay, come on, let, let's put an end to this. And he said, I think you're the guy to do it. So I went after it. Now, um, do, what do you think he could have accomplished if he had not disappeared and died at the age of 40? What do you think professionally, musically would have been in store for him? Oh, my goodness. The, the, the sky was the limit. I mean, he would have come back immediately. What would have happened would have been he would he had three he had contract for three movies with 20th Century Fox. So he would have been in Hollywood making more movies. He made two before he joined the military. Uh, his network radio program um, for Chesterfield Cigarettes, and they, they were sponsors at the time, would have, would have continued. Um, he would have made more records for RCA Victor. Um, it's interesting that he and Elvis had the same label, RCA Victor, but that, that's, he would have just gone on. But his plan really wasn't to continue leading a big band. I think he was he was a savvy guy and a smart businessman, and he could read the tea leaves, and he knew what was going on. I think he would have gone into management. He had plans to mm. perhaps invest in radio stations. He was going to move full-time from New Jersey, where he lived for tax purposes. He, he had lived in, in, in the city, but he moved out to New Jersey in 1939 for tax purposes. Um, he had bought a home, a ranch, basically, in Southern California. So he, like many in the music business, was 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 gravitating to the West Coast. So mm-hmm. he would have moved to California. I think he would have gotten into management, and I think he would have um, developed other talent and other acts and other people. He already had a, a music licensing firm, a music publishing firm, I should say. So I, I think he would have branched out and done a lot. Of that. Uh, on that note, uh, we're going to have to end it there. I appreciate the stroll down memory lane and your insight. Dennis Sprague, thanks very much. You're more than welcome, my friend. Uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope. Uh, if you want to check out the book, Glenn Miller Declassified, it's available on Amazon, or you can go to Dennis's website, Dennis M. Sprague. 
Com. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 